Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Black Cast on my phone, ready to play right now. Listening to Black Cast. I don't want to watch what's on the TV. iTunes app put on the BC. Podcasts on, no talking to me. Listening to Black Keep up on comics and movies Two phone ring, I answer hoodies I can't talk, call back if you please Listening to Blackcast You don't know what you are missing Damn fine show hosted by Christian He's just dope, no ass I'm kissing Listening to Blackcast Click subscribe on this podcast You won't be the first, but don't you be last Listen while you pumping your gas Listening to Blackcast on this episode, it's Jean Grey talking about the things that she say. So distracted, didn't feed Bay. Listening to Blackcast. Met this girl, she smiled in my face. Blackcast insulated my place. Had one beer, she brought a whole case. Listening to Blackcast. Welcome to the Blackcast. Yes, Christian Blatt here for another fun filled installment of the Blackcast. Blackcast 360. That sounds like too many, but. We've come full circle. Thank you for my terrible joke. Here on Blackcast 360, uh, in a few moments, we'll be joined by a special guest. But before we get to that, make sure that you like the Blackcast on Facebook. Please follow at Blackcast on Twitter. And for all those Blackcasting needs, go to Blackcast.com. And it's always important to note B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. That is is how we spell Blackcast. Joining us now is artist Andy Smith. Andy, welcome to The Blackcast. And uh, he, he can be found at andysmithart.com. That seems to be the one-stop shop for uh, all your Andy Smith needs. But I know you're also on social media. Do you want people to say hi to you there, or is it really just about the website? No, no, social media is fine. Uh, Instagram is just Andy Smith Art, and Facebook is actually... Uh, you know, that Facebook.com, I guess, forward slash Andy Smith cartoonist, because somebody apparently took Andy Smith art. So, well, I, I suppose there might be other Andy Smiths out there. I think it's possible, right? Yeah, there are, but I do, uh, I, I can still claim that I come up pretty quick on a Google search. So that's good. Yeah, well, no, that's good. Uh, for for me, obviously, my my name's a little bit more unique, the uh, Blatt part being the most unique part. But if you do Google Christian Blatt spelled exactly the same way as my name is spelled, you will get a Danish boxer who is now retired, but he was uh, undefeated in his, I think, first 19 or 20 fights. And then all of a sudden he just never won again, so he needed to retire. But I always wondered that if I went over to, over to Denmark and they saw my passport said Christian Blatt, would it be like if it said Mike Tyson and they'd be like, come on, what's your real name? You know, what is this? What is this forgery that you're trying to show to me? In any I, case, you know, I've, only, uh, I've only had that happen twice with my actually, you know, showing my ID or something where somebody's like, wait a second, the and they always put the in front of it, but they yeah. say the and they the Andy Smith. And I'm always thrown off. So I'm like, you know, I just draw comics for a living. What's. But I always go, uh, wh what do you mean? And they're like, the draws comics. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. You know, like my photo's all over the place or anything, so they just see the idea and they just figure, I'm going to take that stab in the dark. So, <laughs> Well, uh, Andy, I'd like you to uh, walk down the uh, road that led us here, how you've ended up on the Black Cast today, because I always think it's, it's interesting sometimes for people to know how, how we connect and, and how it uh, leads to me tricking people into then appearing on the Blackcast. 
Yeah, no. Um, you know, I've I've always been a big fan of Dennis Miller, and I honestly don't remember how I found that he even had a had a podcast. But yes, I, that's the know, uh, that's the top notch marketing behind uh, either <laughs> podcast one where our first year was or Westwood one uh, currently. Just the amount of times that people are like, "Oh, I didn't know you had a podcast," and you're like, "Great, well, that's exactly what we want to hear." I did start with the podcast one, so yeah. I've been listening for a long time now. Yeah, but um, so now I, I heard that, and then obviously heard you, and then you would pimp out your podcast, so I searched that out, and you know, I searched it out, but I didn't contact you yet because I was just like, oh, another cool podcast, okay. And then on Dennis's, I hear you guys talking about Ben Grimm and comic books and stuff like that every now and then. And yeah. I don't know how much he's into that stuff, but you sounded like you were. So I was like, yeah, uh, I'm always down for shooting people emails and yeah. saying, Hey, this is, you know, I'm a fan and this is what I do and whatever. So that's about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll talk a little bit about it on the Dennis Miller option, which by the way, new episodes, Tuesdays and Thursdays on Westwood one, since, you know, maybe more promotion could uh, always be necessary. <laughs> The uh, but the broadcast, like you know, if you look, sometimes you'll see episodes and be like, okay, so this episode is all about this comic book movie. Oh, he's talking to Chris Claremont in this episode, you know. So obviously, there's a a little bit of a connection. And when I I, when you wrote to me, first of all, I was uh, glad to hear from you. Uh, I did remember, and then I had to make sure, but uh, I think that I was specifically familiar with your work because. There's so many different variations, but you did. Was it was that one called Extreme X Men? What was the X Men you did? With, it was the one with Claremont where it was like, well, if I had stuck around in 1991, these are the stories I would have told. Uh, is that called X Men Forever? I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, X Men Forever. Right. Yeah. No, Extreme X Men, something totally different. So you worked on that book to some extent, uh, right? Yeah, I did. I did a couple issues of it because they would have different guys. Tom Grummet was the main artist. Yeah. And did two vol. They did, you know, probably in total 35, 40 issues, but broken up into two volumes. And then the second volume, I came in and did a couple issues because at that point they were having uh, different guys come in and just do like two issues here and mm-hmm. you know, two issues there and such. But, you know, it was definitely a, a bucket list thing to be able to work with Chris just because, you know, it's Chris Claremont and I grew up reading the X Men stuff that you know he was doing so (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think that uh i'm wondering is it do you approach drawing for chris any differently in that you need to maybe leave room for more word balloons than other writers or was it really about the same well actually it's funny because i don't so getting into a little bit of how comics are written because i don't know how much you know but there's there's two different writing styles there's arvo method and then full script is what they call it. And 90% of comics these days are full script. And full script, just a quick breakdown is, you know, page one, panel one, the writer describes what's in the panel, and then even writes out the dialogue for the characters. Panel two describes it all, dialogue, panel three, so on and so forth. Whereas a plot <clears throat> would be page one, and then just like a short paragraph explaining everything that happens on the page with maybe hint of dialogue like, oh, Cyclops is, you know, talking to Jean Grey and, you know, he's really happy. Or just some indication sure. so I know, you know, what expression to draw. And Chris is, you know, 
Chris started at Marvel in the late 70s when everything was plot style. So when I actually got the gig, the editor asked me, he goes, uh, it was a new editor I'd never worked with before. And he's like, uh, now Chris White writes plot style. You know, is that something you can do? And I'm like, yeah, when I started working in comics in the early 90s, the first guy I worked with wrote plot style at Marvel. So, yeah, I was like one of the last wave of people coming in where writers were still writing that way. So, you know, I found it working plot style with Chris. I just found it so, I guess, freeing because he didn't nail down like, oh, this is a five panel page. Oh, this is a six panel page. So I could break it up however I wanted. And, you know, knowing Chris is, you know, can get kind of wordy with his dialogue and stuff. Yeah. I mean, in certain panels, I definitely left a little more room. And, um, you know, when I saw the finished product, I was really, really happy with how it came out. Because, you know, the, the artist's worst fear is like, oh, my art's going to get covered by all these word balloons. Right. Um, and, you know, that that didn't happen. You know, it was it was laid out really well. And that that also comes down to working with a good letterer because it's the letterer's job to figure out, you know, where the balloons go. And, you know, it's my job as the penciler to to leave enough room in the panels and compose the panels properly. So the letter should just be able to look at it and go, Oh, this is where he wants the balloons to go. Uh, um, yeah. In terms of uh, lettering is how much of that in, you know, now in 2020, how much of that is done in computer, you know, lettering, because I, I would assume that, even the the old days, you know, when I was reading comics the most, the mid '80s through the early '90s, I, I assume that was all; those were all handwritten, and I was always just amazed at how small people were able to write. Specifically, the letterer that uh, Chris would use the most, uh, Tom Orzechowski, I think is how you say his name, and because yeah. he seemed to write smaller than everyone else, and. Uh, it, it is because, you know, there would be a lot of dialogue in, in X-Men in particular. You know, I think the Wolverine solo book maybe didn't have as much, but it just seemed like some of them were able to write much smaller than others, or at least were required to. And so I guess that goes back to my question. Is the standard now computers to do the lettering? And if so, has it been that way for a while? Yeah, the standard is definitely, I'd say 95% of the comics out there are all lettered you know, computer now. Um, and it's, it probably started that way. I'd say in the late nineties, um, you know, and going back to the size of the lettering, you know, another thing, once again, I don't know how much comic book production stuff, you know, but you know, comic books are drawn one and a half times up. So they're drawn an original piece of comic art. is 11 by 17. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly seen those for sale at conventions okay. and things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Tom, when he was doing the lettering, he might have, the, the tool that was used back then was called an Ames lettering guide to kind of lay out the, the guidelines for the lettering. And there's a use, there's, it's a pretty standard setting that everybody sets it to. So once again, that just comes down to Tom just being one of the best in the business at the craft of knowing where to put the balloons and, you know, the artist as well, leaving enough space for the dialogue too. But yeah, I'd say it switched over, you know, probably about 23 years ago. Right. And, you know, within the past 15 years, it was probably running 90% of all books are, are uh, 
computer lettered, but there are some artists that still prefer hand lettering and will go out of their way to get their books hand lettered. Cause you know, a lot of the, a lot of the guys, I know Tom still works, even though he's probably doing a computer now. Uh, one of the guys I went to art school with is a letterer in the industry that's been doing it since, you know, 91 when we both graduated and he switched from hand lettering to computer lettering. Uh, but it's still advantageous to know the hand lettering because, you know, there, there's an art form behind lettering, but yeah. if you're just doing it on a computer, I could basically, and I'm not putting letterers down, but I could teach my wife at that point how to do it because it's about fonts and placement yeah. and stuff. Whereas if I was like, great, I just taught you how to do that. Oh, here's an original piece of art. I need you to letter it. She'd be lost. <laughs> you know? Right. No, that look, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and is is coloring done via computer now? Oh, yeah. Coloring's yeah. all Photoshop. That's kind um, of what I figured, because uh, obviously, I mean, I, I usually when you see the original art, it, it's uh, I, I don't know. I can't I don't know that I've ever seen it uh, colored in because I, I always figured that that was, you know, inks and things that were, were, you know, applied kind of around the printing process. So uh, I don't, I don't even know what the old uh, coloring process was, but I always know that there was a colorist and I just assumed that that was, you know, hand coloring in, you know, uh, when you're doing the, the right Wolverine suit, the one that I like, you're like, well, you have to have the Brown on here and not that uh, ugly yellow color. Well, and the way, okay. So the way coloring used to be done, was they would take their they would take their original artboards and they would just photocopy them down to print size, so just on regular copy paper, not even like fantastic paper or anything. And the the standard um, tool of the trade was something called Dr. Martin dyes, and it's kind of it's kind of like watercolor, except the difference is with watercolor, even after watercolor is dry, you can go in and reactivate it with water. But Dr. Martin dies, once it's dry, it's done. It dies the paper, so you can't go back in like a day later with clear water and reactivate it. So they would, the colors would color on the photocopy, and then what they would have to do is, and this is going back to, you know, 80s, early 90s, when most of the comics were flat color. The more important part wasn't what the colors did on the page with the dyes. It was actually, they had to code every color. So if you were to go to eBay or probably do a Google search for a comic book coloring guide, you could probably find some because I know, you know, I know guys in the business that used to color that way and they got their original guides back. So for instance, a guy like, I'm just going to go with Superman, um, his blue because comics are a four-color process, CMYK, his uh, his red, I'll, I'll say, might be R, and I never colored much, sure. so this code is probably wrong, but as an example, his red on his costume might be R1, which right. is like the printer sees that and goes, oh, 100% red, for instance. So basically, if I'm it, a colorist could basically color you know, Wolverine's brown, pink. But if he codes it, the actual code of whatever the brown is, whatever the four-color makeup is to make that brown, when a printer gets it, he might look at it and go, wow, Wolverine's pink. But then when he reads the code and sees that it's the proper code, he's going to do the proper code. So when the book comes out, it'll be brown. 
Right. So the, the colorist could, you know, when they're actually dyeing the paper the way you're talking about, could make a mistake and then, you know, sort of get the note. Actually, no, this is with Gray Hulk and not Green Hulk. So then you just code it differently and like, oh, yeah, he's actually going to be gray in all of these pictures. None of the green that I used. Right. Yeah. 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 It's interesting to see those old colors yeah. with all the codes marked up on them. And then what happened was before it went totally to the computer, what they would pay people, they would pay the colorist when they were making the transition. Colorists at the time, they didn't know, you know, when Photoshop first came around, because this goes back to about 93, 94, when they first started using Photoshop, um, they would hire the colorist. They'd say, here's, you know, do your color guide. But this time, instead of doing flat color and stuff, you can get in there and paint it. So, like, if you want to use watercolors, acrylics, colored pencil, anything you want to get the gradations and stuff to really show the form like comics look now, um, you can do that. And we don't need any codes because we're going to take your color guide and give it to somebody that knows how to use Photoshop. And they're going to paint it going by what you did on that color guide. So that happened for a while. And then once colorists started learning how to use Photoshop themselves, it kind of eliminated that middleman to where it was just like, hey, you know, Andy, we want you to color this book. And it's like, okay, here's our digital, um, here's our, uh, our, our specs. Right. We need you to turn the page in, you know, resolution, size, all that stuff for printing. So color it up in Photoshop and, you know, email it back to us, basically. Right. So, you know, this is all fascinating because when I was uh, younger, I don't think I thought that much about these things. Uh, I, what I did think about at some point when I was a little older was you have these immensely talented artists doing this beautiful work. And then it is printed on some of the worst paper known to man. You know, <laughs> like the, the, the I, I mean, no, I it's, it, it's great. It has a very specific smell and a feel and, and, and I love it. But you just you see like even when a, a book was, you know, reprinted for trade paperback and it was just on better paper, you're like, oh, it looks so much better. But, yeah, there's something oh. weird about the way books are now. They're all that slick like magazine paper. And it, you know, it's sort of not the, the same feeling at all. But it just, uh, you know, you can it really showcases the art better, I think, in the present day. Oh, yeah, no, totally. I mean, just just with the advent of computers in general, because of, you know, scanning i scan all my art at 600 dpi which people listening would be like unless they're in a computer stuff be like what but i mean that's a really high resolution to get all the line work and the black and white art picked up and um and then when it gets reduced down you know back in the old days in the you know 70s 80s whatever early 90s they would take photographs of every page right and then it would be uh reduced down and because we knew the work was being printed on newsprint, we would actually, in the inking stage, um, take that into account because we know that our lines would close up some in the reduction from the 11 by 17 to the printed comic book size. So it was a little bit of a, a, a learning curve for the artists as well with the good paper and the high production value of scanning to realize, oh, my lines aren't going to close up anymore. Because you could get cool effects with, you know, lines closing up, sure, and yeah. smudging, different things. Whereas now, you know, when I draw the 11 by 17 and it gets reduced down, all that stuff is there. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. You know, it's good when it comes to, you know, it depends on the artist. I'm, you know, I, I consider myself detail oriented with the type of work I do. So it's good, you know, for, for yeah. guys like that, that do that type of uh, more detail work. So it all does still show up when it gets reduced down. Yeah, it's interesting well, think, how technology yeah. changes so much the way that things are presented. I remember when I was a I was a page at NBC in 1999, and you know we all knew that HD TV was coming. It didn't come quite as soon as we were told, but it, it did eventually come. And they tested out HD cameras by filming a dress rehearsal of Saturday Night Live, and you oh. could see the glue from the wigs, from the prosthetics and the makeup all looked terrible. Uh -huh. So it was just like, oh yeah, we have to completely redo the way we do everything because of what it looks like. And it, it you know, you're talking about this change in the process from newsprint to, you know, that glossy paper I, I can see. And I, I remember that happening while I was reading comics. The paper got a little bit better at first and then it went to the glossy paper. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I started reading comics, they were like 60 cents. And then all of a sudden they were like $3. Maybe it was two, but still it was like, oh, that was that was a huge jump. You know, I, I would be happy if it was still on newsprint. Is there any way to, is there any way to go back to that and, and maybe notch the price back down? But uh, obviously that's not the way the business yeah, works. Yeah. The funny thing is, newsprints actually falls into the more expensive paper category now. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, now, but it's, did it did it in the nineties? In the nineties, was it cheaper? No, back back in the nineties, when they started making the switch over, one of the reasons was because a lot of a lot of us artists from that era were like, "Oh, but we love newsprint." Yeah. And from what we were told, it was like, "Nah, newsprint really isn't that cost effective anymore when it comes to the better paper stock." And, you know, from from a consumer standpoint, most people look at the better paper stock and go, if I'm paying, you know, more money, I want that paper stock. And and, you know, it's not only that, it's, you know, it's what everybody on the back, you know, the creative side of it gets paid as well. Even even if it went to newsprint, the cost of the book wouldn't come down. So that that's neither here nor there. Yeah. With it, you know, with the coloring, the way the coloring's done now, too. You know, with the amount of modeling and sh and and rendering and shading they do in the coloring, it really wouldn't look good on newsprint. Newsprint was great when the stuff was basically flat color or two yeah. tones, but with what they do now, the newsprint would just absorb the color like a sponge, a little too much probably. So, but I, you know, look when it comes to the smell of that stuff, I, uh, you know, I'm still a big nerd comic collector, and you know, we'll get books from the '60s and stuff and it drives my wife nuts, but I'll sit on the couch and crack them out of the, you know, the, the plastic bag and give it a good smell. And her and my daughter just look at me like, you're just insane. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there's nothing like this smell. You, you just don't understand. Yeah. No, look, I had a, I had a stretch and look, I have my comics that, uh, that go back to, you know, when I was collecting and I, I was doing something for a little while and that I would never know what I wanted to, you know, I would always come up a little short when I was putting together a list for either my birthday or Christmas. So what I started doing was uh, at, at a certain point I had uh, Uncanny X-Men, I had every issue from... At one point, I got to 137, the death of Jean Grey, the okay. death in air quotes. And I went all the way up until like the early 300s when I stopped reading. And so I would occasionally be like, look, if somebody wants to get me something, 
uh, get me the issue before the the earliest one I have. So yeah, I got back to like I think one twenty nine, which is the first appearance of Kitty Pride, and sure. I would love when I would get those though because they would be in different degrees of condition. And the, you know, if it was yeah. like a very fine or good copy, it it had that really sort of like ripe paper smell. If it was a little bit of a nicer one. It, you know, it doesn't, it was kept, I don't know, it was kept too well. It was preserved too well. So yeah. the smell wasn't quite what I, what I expect when I open a comic book from, you know, 1979 or 1980. So uh, very rarely do I experience any new comics in that way. You know, I mean, new for me, I mean, you know, like uh, acquire something that, so when I would, I was like, oh, that's the stuff. There's that smell. Here's, I'll give you a suggestion um, for, like, you know, gifts and stuff, if you ask. This is uh, what I started doing a couple years ago. So I collect now books that have the cover date month of the month I was born from the year I was born. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm 80% done. And I don't, you know, I don't care about my age. So, like, I was born in 69. So I collect every book that is cover dated November and then inside, or, you know, 1969 cover date, November. Now, yeah. it didn't come out that month. If I wanted the book that actually came out that month, that would be September or something. But I'd rather say November on the cover. Yeah, so, no, no, I, that, yeah, I mean, look, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I, I like that idea, actually. And, yeah, I mean, the months were always so far ahead. It is a little bit hard to know at times, you know. I, I do remember when they wanted the months to catch up at least Marvel, I assume everybody or DC at least did it too, where it was like you had April and then mid April. And then I don't even know if they then did like, cause they were like four months ahead at one point and then they caught up because that's what they wanted to do. Uh, I think that's a fun idea. Cause yeah, then you would have like, for me, I was born in February, 1976. So while I'm talking yeah. to you, I looked it up and that's, uh, well, it's not even called uncanny X-Men at the point. It's just the X-Men, uh, issue 97 and I oh, love one. Yeah, that's well, yeah, but that, and I know that's a great one too. That's got uh, Cyclops uh, fighting havoc uh, on the cover because I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah, that's not a cheap one. Uh, a very good copy would cost seventy five dollars. So I'm probably not going to get that one. Maybe I'll look for, you know, maybe a maybe a Shang Chi or an Iron Fist from that month. Uh, but. Yeah. And the thing that I was thinking as I was looking it up, I remember that at that point, X-Men was still bi-monthly. So there might not have been a February one, but uh, I guess I lucked out in that there was. But yeah, so yeah. Uh, just thinking of it because we were talking about X-Men, that's a very expensive proposition for me to try and get uh, X-Men number 97. Yeah, but then if you look at the rest of the stuff that came out in February, you said 76? 76, yeah. 76 most of the other stuff is prop like you could probably score seven or eight or nine bucks for the cost of that one and yeah build it out for me i got a friend of mine hooked on this when i told him what i was doing and he was born in 59 oh boy and i'm like all right good luck to you buddy yeah, good, good luck good luck to you because there's no marvel comics from then <laughs> you know no but there's dc supermans yeah. and stuff like that so all right well see here's then, here's something that i've done now i looked up amazing spider-man and that's issue 153 that would cost me 12 dollars, and that would be kind of yeah. cool to have you know i i don't i don't even quite know who he's fighting he's uh it, it looks like he's in a football stadium but uh 
Yeah. Uh, a football field becomes a raging battleground as Spidey fights to save an innocent child. So it's not the most exciting cover, but it would be February 1990, uh, 1976. And that would be more fun. So, uh, yeah, maybe I'll try and get that one. You know, my birthday is uh, just a, a few days away, really. So uh, this would be the time for uh, anybody out there who wants to send me Amazing Spider-Man 153. And I don't want your digital copy. I can get that on Marvel Unlimited. But I, if you want to send me the actual copy, uh, you can direct message me and I'll tell you where to send it. Um, and I'll let you know, Andy, how that pans out, but uh, I don't expect that in any case. Um, you know, I, we got sidetracked, but I think that's fascinating. Yeah. What is, what is you? So sorry. What month? 1969. Uh, November, November. So what do you think is the coolest one you have? Like, Oh, this is a great cover from November, 1969. Oh, um, there's a Submariner cool. 69, which is pretty cool. There's, um, I can actually tell you cause there's a website that you can go to and you can search out by month and year like that. And it pulls up everything that came out. Oh, cool. That month. Oh, one of my favorites is captain America. One nineteen. That that's, that has a, a cool shot of cap on it and the Falcon in the background when he was wearing that ugly green costume. Oh yeah. And then my, one of my all time favorite heroes is the Marvel captain Marvel. And uh, that's number eighteen. And you're talking about Marvel, Captain Marvel, not yeah. not any of the other iterations. The the uh, Captain yeah. Marvel when I was reading comics was uh, Monica Rambeau, who was a, a member of the Avengers. Right. Yeah, the the African American Captain Marvel. You used to be able to say the female Captain Marvel, but now that's not specific enough. No, not anymore. <laughs> that was, she was Miss Marvel back in the yes. day. Yes. So yeah. And then really when I was reading comics, she was binary. So it's all very confusing, but, uh, there's a great, uh, uh there's a great, uh, Twitter account that I follow. And I guess almost 11,000 people follow it too. It's called rack spinner. It's at rack spinner. And what it does is it's like, like I look at it, look, while you and I are talking, it's February 4th. So it shows you books that were on the rack this day. And obviously the cover date doesn't match up. So for in February, they were, they were May. And you see, like Daredevil, Daredevil one twenty one. It's when he was uh, teamed up with uh, with Black Widow, and uh, you got a Frankenstein, you got a Hulk fighting somebody called the Gremlin, you got a giant sized man thing. So uh, that's kind of a, a fun way to do that. But you said that there's a website where you can look this up. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. I actually just went to Rack Spinner so I can hit pop. Yeah, no, yeah, it, um, it, 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 I, I love that because it's every day, and like they'll do a post where it's like four Marvel books, and then there'll be another post where you'll get like a bunch of DC books. You know, they do they do both. Um, they don't. Yeah. They tend to not mix and match though. They tend to only do a Marvel post and then only a DC post. So, um, for when it's an era that I was reading, I always like going through the Marvel books because I'm like, oh, I owned all four of those. You know, so that's always kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, go to uh, it's Mike's Mike's Amazing World.com. Okay. I will go to Mike's. And then there's a search thing at the top where you can um, you click on newsstand. I think it's newsstand. Yeah, newsstand cool. at the top. And then basically there's drop downs for cover date. And if you want it, uh, you know, on sale that date or if it's the cover date. Oh yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look at that. Well, that's really cool. I, 
I, I don't need to play with this uh, while we're uh, recording and talking to everyone, but uh, I, I'm going to definitely go through this. Um, while I am playing with this, though, what I wanted to uh, ask you about, you were talking about before uh, penciling and inking, and I think I know the answer to this. Uh, I noticed that sometimes books would list the artists as uh, breakdowns and finisher. And uh, I, I feel like, to me, that would imply that the penciling was a little bit less detailed than when somebody was listed as, as penciler. Is that, is that fairly accurate interpretation of what those credits mean? Yeah, that's totally accurate. Um, basically what I consider when I was taught, um, and I went a little sidetrack. I went to a place called the Joe Hubert school of cartoon and graphic art. Oh yeah. I believe that. Joe I believe that they, uh, they, they advertised in, in comics. I, 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 I mean, yeah. I remember seeing it. Where, where was that located? That's in New Jersey, upstate Jersey, like 45 minutes out of New York. All right. Well, now, now I need to know which town because that's not too far from oh. where I'm from. Dover. Oh, yeah. My my aunt used to live out that way. That's funny. OK, no, great. I never say it because people I tell people Dover, New Jersey, and they're like, what? Yeah. You mean Delaware? And I'm like, no, no, it's yeah, Florida. no, no. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I know that little corner in New Jersey uh, actually fairly well. Yeah, it's actually the school itself was the old Dover High School. Oh, that's interesting. He bought, he bought it in 1977 or 78. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, yeah, so I was taught when I was taught breakdowns, basically breakdowns are looking at a pencil page that's kind of like a coloring book. And what I mean is no shadows are drawn in, no rendering, and rendering is like the line work, yeah. no figures textures, none of that stuff's drawn in, just the basics. So the costumes are there. So as a finisher, because I've done finishing over different artists as well, as a finisher, I shouldn't get a page, you know, say it's a Wolverine page. I shouldn't get a page and see a figure of some dude jumping with a note that says Wolverine. Like his costume should be drawn. Right. But all the lighting and textures and everything is up to me. So it's basically the way it's looked at is a 50-50 uh, split, basically, in the workload. The breakdown artist is doing 50% of the work, and then the finisher is doing another 50%. Yeah. Whereas penciling, you know, penciling, it's your job to put in all the shadows, the rendering, the, you know, everything. And, I mean, some penciler stuff is so tight that and that with the digital age, they'll just what they call digital ink it, which is basically taking the pencils into Photoshop and adjusting some settings to make it to make the lines go from a pencil gray to a you know a strong solid sure. black. And they'll wow. just print stuff that way. Yeah, no, see that's interesting. I mean, because I, I always noticed that look there a lot of times I I, I think that you didn't it wasn't always stark the difference in in inkers uh and look this is a this is a very personal opinion uh i'm not trying to rope you into this but i have oh, always preferred uh john Byrne when he doesn't ink his own stuff i don't like the way his fantastic <laughs> forerun looked I, whereas i thought like when terry austin was inking him it was beautiful and i it's not like i hated it i was just like Oh, that looks weird. You know, I just thought that, and maybe that's more testament to Terry Austin. I was just like, oh, I, and I, I've just never liked it as much. Uh, and that's why I'm, you know, letting you keep your distance from that comment. Uh, it's just, oh, it, 
You know, I mean, I, you know, I know, I know both those guys, and um, and you know, I I know Terry better. I've met John. I've had dinner with John. Man, this is like twenty some years ago. Sure. And um, so I I mean I wouldn't call John and I friends by any means. I've only met him once or twice. Yeah. But I do know from just talking to other professionals and stuff. You know, John didn't hate what Terry did. John liked it, but John's inclination is more, he likes the more organic feel, which he thinks he gets when he inks his work yeah. compared to Terry's stuff, which was very, very tight and crisp. And, you know, Terry started a whole inking revolution almost w among, you know, people my age that want to get in, that got into comics when I did. And if you ask them, who was your favorite anchor? They're like, oh, Terry Austin. Yeah. And you can look at their work and tell. And, um, it was just pairing the two people up at the right time. And it just had this look on the X-Men at that time that no other book really had. Yeah. Um, I've always loved Terry's stuff and I was able to have him make me once on just this one piece in a book that I did myself. Um, whereas Byrne, you know, I like John stuff. I actually, you know, the funny thing is you didn't like the Fantastic Four. I liked this Fantastic Four, but my favorite stuff of his was Alpha Flight. So Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, he, yeah, he would, uh, I believe he inked uh, Alpha Flight himself. Yeah, I, I remember that look. And yeah, I remember his, I remember his, his run on that. I remember they did a weird thing where the, the entire staff of Alpha Flight and Incredible Hulk just switched so everyone who yep. was involved in Alpha Flight all of a sudden was doing Hulk and vice versa. And then I don't think John stuck yep. with the Hulk for very long. But I do remember that being such a such a weird thing to like, oh, yeah, this very specific look is now in this book and vice versa. And that I don't know. I mean, it, it's probably not the most memorable thing to a lot of people, but it's stayed with me. I don't know, not th probably 35 years after it happened, because it was very noticeable, you know, and I think that's a, oh. it's a very, it's a very unique style. And look, I, I do like his work. I just, I guess it's really a, like you're saying, it's a testament to Terry because I, I just always preferred the way that it looked in uh, uncanny X-Men, you know, to, to other work. And I get it. And like the thing about John Byrne's pencils are for, for most anchors, they prefer pencils like Burns because they're what, they're tight and everything's there that an anchor needs. But if you give a John Byrne pencil page to five different anchors, it'll look five different ways. Right, sure. Whereas some artists now, their pencils are so tight. They're, the, they're basically the, the tightness I was saying where you can almost just darken them up in Photoshop and print them because even the line weights are there. So if you give pencils that tight to five different anchors, you'd probably need a trained eye to look at the five pages and see major differences. But Burns pencils were just, you know, he's just drawing. He's just putting it down with the HB pencil. He'll sharpen it every now and then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, know? sure. And it's not his job to ink the book. It's his job to pencil it and then give it to an anchor. Um, so, and, you know, going back real quick to the process, Another thing you might not know is a lot of people now, I'd say it's probably a 60-40, maybe 70-30 
a lot of people are just doing stuff, doing all their drawing totally digital, not even using paper anymore. Oh, that makes Um, sense. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, because, you know, back when I grew up and, you know, in the 90s as well, and early 2000s, you still had the pencil or inker team. But now if you go to a comic shop and look at a lot of the books that are out, I'd say more than half of them, the artist on the book did the pencil and inks themselves. And a lot of the people that do that, those are the ones that do it 100% on the computer. Um, Now, myself, I'm about a 50-50 now. I've got, I basically draw everything on the computer, and then when I ink it, I print it out onto the full-size 11 by 17 paper, and then I use traditional brushes and pens to ink it for two reasons. One, I still can't get that look of using traditional tools with a computer program and I love having original art. So, yeah. And that's where people that just do hundred percent digital, I mean, more power to them, but at the end of the day, they don't have a piece of like, you know, original art that they can hold in their hands. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> a good point. Print out. Yeah. The, the, uh, the original art is uh, something that, uh, it was never in my budget to get into as a collector, but I do have something very cool that, uh, I, I was glad my, my dad sprung for it at a convention. I think it was as a birthday present. Uh, it was, it's a uh, Dave Cockrum did a sketch for me of Kitty pride and he did it of her as shadow cat. Cause that's the way she looked at the time. And, you know, not when he came back to the book and she had some very atrocious, uh, costumes. I was glad he didn't do that. But what I always appreciated, he threw in Lockheed for free. So, uh, because he just thought it would be fun to have Lockheed with her. So that's like the one piece that I have. And, uh, I, I think that, you know, considering that that's who it was, it's, uh, you know, and Kitty was always my favorite character. Uh, I was fairly young when I started reading comics. So I identified with, uh, Kitty and, uh, because of the age I was, the Power Pack series was really one of my favorites because uh, I, I was just like, look at these kids, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I like New Mutants, too. But uh, that was that was sort of like a like a stealth kids book. It was very adult. It just happened to be teenagers in it. You know, I mean, especially with the uh, once you had the Bill Sienkiewicz, uh art in it, it, it didn't oh. really feel like it was for kids anymore. You know, I uh, it, that now that's a perfect example, by the way, of an artist I did not particularly appreciate as a kid but also once you're older and then also when you see it presented not on newsprint i mean his you know his style is so unique but it's it it really was beautiful i thought oh i love i love bill's stuff he's he's just i mean the guy's just a genius so when it comes to drawing painting i mean he can he can do it all i yeah i love his work yeah i i want I, I wanna one of the times where I interviewed uh, Chris Claremont, I uh, floated the idea for him, which he of course thought would have been great. The Legion TV series was so weird and trippy. I just thought it would have been amazing if they had done a few minutes animated in that style. And you know, Chris of course thought it was a great idea, but uh, you know, and well, who knows, maybe we get it. But we never did actually get it. That was the one thing that I was uh, was hoping we would have gotten from uh, from that show. But. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, so we've, uh, you know, sort of meandered into a lot of uh, particularly interesting to me, but, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more in-depth in for the, the casual comic fan. But uh, I know that uh, my friend uh, Jeff Winstead, who's an avid listener of the Blackcast, he has a, a comic of his own called The Alternate. And uh, he and I will trade messages that are very much like the conversation uh, you and I are having right now. You know, uh, it's uh, so it's good to actually have a, a conversation like that. And I, I want to talk about what you're working on now, but you talked about this, uh, this Kubert school, and then you started working professionally in 1991. Talk about what your first professional jobs were, maybe the first few and how they came about. Um, so I graduated in 1991 in the spring of 91, when I was still in Kubert school, one of the teachers at the school was a artist by the name of Bart Sears, who at the time was working on a book called Justice League Europe for DC. Mm -hmm. And I was, he taught there that third, he taught only one year at the Kubert school and it happened to be the year I was a senior, but he taught second year students. So when I started my senior year and I saw that he was on staff, I was like, what? And he's not teaching third year? What the hell? So I <laughs> barged into his classroom one morning before school started to introduce myself to him because I was a big fan of his work. And I showed him my work and, you know, said, you know, I was a big fan and just want to get his opinion. And I guess he saw something in it because we basically became friends and he would tutor me after school and stuff. And he lived in town so I could just shoot over to his apartment and he would you know, work on his DC work at the time and I'd work on homework. And then he let me draw some backgrounds and, you know, like buildings and stuff, nothing super important in the back of Justice League Europe. And I was working on sample pages and sample pages are, you know, just like they sound. When you want to get a job as an artist in comics, you have to show them your samples. Right. And generally as a penciler, you show four to five pages of sequential art. So panel to panel storytelling, you don't show covers and splash pages and stuff. You want to show them you know, how to tell a story. Right. So I, you know, I worked on some sample pages and, you know, Bart would put tracing paper over them and be like, you know, you can try and fix this or do this. And I did that stuff. So I got to a point in the spring of 91 where he was like, you know, you want to come up to DC comics with me? Well, I dropped some pages off and I introduced you to some editors. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we drove into D.C. Like I said, the Hubert School is only about 45 minutes out of New York yeah. City. And that's where D.C. was located at the time. And, you know, we went up and he, you know, he introduced me to editors. And he didn't, you know, he didn't hard sell like, hey, this is my buddy. You need to give him work. He was just like, you know, this is a, a student of mine at the school. And everybody knew, you know, everybody in comics knows the Hubert School. Sure. She was like, you know, this is a student of mine, you know, would you give him a few minutes? And they were like, oh, yeah. And, you know, the first time up, I got some critiques, you know, oh, you know, work on this, you know, yeah, work on, you know, moving the camera more for different camera angles, you know, whatever. Um, I was like, all right. So I went back and worked up four or five new pages. And a couple weeks later, you know, Bart's like, you want to hit your ride back up there? And I was like, yeah, man. So we went up and, you know, and. Obviously, it was a lot easier back then. This was before 9-11. So, you know, you could literally just walk into the lobby of the, the skyscraper DC was in at the time and go right to the elevators without anybody saying anything. Sure, and yeah. And just get the elevator and shoot on up to whatever floor they were on. And I showed the stuff, and they were like, wow, you're, 
not only are you back in a timely fashion, because even though they didn't say you come back in like a week and a half or two weeks, you know, they'll remember. So I came back, you know, in two weeks, they remembered, you know, wow, it's only been a couple of weeks and you worked up new pages while you go to school full time. And, you know, they looked at the stuff and they all had really good stuff to say. And like four out of the five were basically like, man, this stuff's really nice. I just don't have anything. Right. But sure. And the fifth, guy, the fifth guy was like, he was actually, the editor was sharing an office with another editor. I showed the stuff to, and he was like, Hey Dan, you know, you got a second, take a look at this kid's stuff. And the editor was like, yeah. And he looked at it. He goes, oh, stuff's good. He goes, um, yeah, I think I can get you something. So he got me an issue of a book called Suicide Squad, which which, uh, is- which people are uh, familiar with, uh, thanks to the uh, the movie and the upcoming uh, sequel of the same name. That is true, except these characters are totally different. Completely from the different, yeah. <laughs> that was not the cast I worked on. Um, there who was who no were uh, who were some of the most recognizable characters in that iteration of Suicide Squad, or or are they to maybe somebody who's a little bit more of a layperson with DC? Are they all somewhat lesser known? Now, there's only you know to be honest, the only character that comes to mind is Bronze Tiger. Okay. And he was actually in a couple episodes of Arrow before DC movie side said, you can't use Suicide Squad anymore. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So um, he's the only one I remember from the, there were like five of them in the issue I drew or Bronze Tigers. The only one I remember. Sure. But so that was my first gig and it uh, never saw print. So. Oh, that's interesting. So was that, uh, was that, was that basically done as like a, like a fill in book, you know, if they missed a deadline and they had to rush something, was that the idea for that or or did, uh, what happened? Yeah, no, that was the idea that except it wasn't called a fill in issue because back then, and they don't do these anymore, but back then it was an inventory issue. Oh, right. Yeah. Paying for, they were paying the whole team, artist, inker, color, letter, obviously writer do the whole book and they would slide it. And this, yeah, obviously this is for the digital age. So all the original artwork was mailed up to DC and then every editor's office, they had a big, you know, they had these big flat files that they could keep their original artwork in for all the books they were working on. And basically what they would do is they'd look at the schedule and be like, Oh man, this issue is not going to make it to print. Do we got an inventory? I sure do. And they'd pull that drawer open and go send this one to the printer. Um, because this was before uh, Diamond, Diamond's the main distributor of comics now. And now, you know, any person can go to a comic shop and pick up the Diamond catalog to see what's coming out three months from now. Right. So Diamond got the great idea of going, let's put our catalog out, not just to the, to the retailer, but to the, to the consumer. So the consumer can look through it and tell the retailer, hey, I want you to order this because you usually don't, but I want this book. Yeah. So this was way before that. See that you can't do inventory jobs now because everything's solicited out three months in advance and everybody knows what's coming out. Yeah. And it also seems like we're in an age and I I read very minimal, uh, new comics. Now I'll occasionally pick things up. Uh, A lot of times it's if, uh, really the last uh, year or so it's often been like, Oh, uh, Chris Claremont has a story in that, you know, like he did a, a great one shot with Bill Sienkiewicz uh, called yeah. the mutants war children, which was fantastic. And I was like, well that I have to buy. Usually it's like little like odds and ends. Like 
you know, Marvel decided to put out a, an issue uh, 108 of the original Star Wars that they had throughout the the mid 80s. And I was like, well, I, I had always loved that book. And, and you know, it's uh, obviously all been retconned away, but uh, I always had a soft spot for it. So occasionally I'll get a few things. But the point that I'm making is that I feel like now if something doesn't make a deadline, it's like, all right, well, you know, we'll just ship it out when it's done then, you know, and especially when super high profile creators are involved, like Kevin oh. Smith or JJ Abrams, like those are two that come to mind immediately that I know uh, do not meet their deadlines. And JJ Abrams, I think has something right now that is, uh, I think he has a Spider-Man book that's already like two issues uh, consecutively or both like four months late. So I think they just, I don't know what it is if they're just like, yeah, you know, it'll, it'll come out when it comes out. And, and, and maybe it's because it's a high profile creator. You can't really switch it out with somebody else, you know? Well, it's high profile. It's high profile creator. It's also depends on the book. And because so, because we're now in a, uh, uh, age where every four to six issues is collected in a trade paperback, they try to plan it out. They they do a lot better of a job planning now too, but they try to plan it out to where ah, we don't want to break this up with a different. And it's usually the artist, you know. Sometimes it's the writer, um, but it's usually the artist. And they go, well, we don't want to break this up with a different artist because when it's collected, it'll be just weird if it's like oh. I'm reading six issues of this trade paperback and issue four is drawn by somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, what people don't realize is, and, and they are thinking long-term with that because Watchmen, for instance, is 12 issues when it originally came out. Yeah. Watchmen did not come out in 12 months. <laughs> but see, nobody remembers that now because now people just buy the trade paperback. Yeah. So just imagine if DC said, no, this has got to come out monthly get somebody to help Dave Gibbons draw it. Yeah. Then you'd have this nice 12 issue thing 30 years later and it wouldn't be drawn by the same guy. You know, Dark Knight Returns, when Frank Miller did that in the 80s, that was four deluxe size issues. So they were basically two issues. It was basically eight issues, but in four issues, they were right. double sized issues, whatever. That didn't come out in four months. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, but and, and you're right because look, I mean, there are you know some of the bigger collections. You will have like, oh yeah, there was a different artist this month, and it it, it can be, you know, I don't, I've never, I, I don't, I can't think of one where I've I've read something and I'm like, oh well, this was a terrible choice, you know. It's just sometimes like, right. oh, this is very different, you know. Uh, a great example is uh, an artist that I think is very talented, uh, Rick Leonardi, but he has a very unique style. So oh, yeah. if What's he fills in on a story, you're like, oh, this just looks so different. Not bad different, just different, you know? Yeah, but Rick's a guy where um, when he fills in on something, and, you know, it depends. I mean, if it's a book I'm already getting, he fills in on it, whatever, I get it. Sure. But I only get probably one or two books every month that are the same title. But I get probably four or five books every week because I buy stuff just because I like the art. So... You know, Rick's a guy, if he draws it nine times out of ten, I'm like, oh, Rick drew it. I'm getting it. Um, yeah, sure. That makes and, sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, well, I can't support all my friends. <laughs> I was going to say, I try to support my friends, too, by going, oh, they drew it. I'll pick it up. But yeah. I can't do that because well, so many people in the business that I can throw. Yeah, well, that's when you have too um, many friends. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the bad, you know, good and bad part. You know, I work at home, so... 
I do, you know, I'm not a shut-in. I do have friends in town, but the majority of my friends draw comics for a living, and we live all around the world. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, for Facebook, that's how I keep in touch with them. Yeah. What, uh, what, uh, what is sort of, you know, so you're talking about this Suicide Squad inventory story that doesn't see the light of oh, day. Yeah. What was, what was kind of the, the big assignment that you got? The first one where it was, you know, you became even a regular or semi-regular on, on a title. Well, the first big assignment was actually my, um, so after Suicide Squad, just to run through it real fast, DC was doing a book called Justice League Quarterly, which, like it says, came out every quarter, but it was an anthology book. So it was 80 pages with, um, I think, 12-page stories in it. And then, you know, you factor in ads, it makes it out to 80. So sure. I was a regular artist on a 12-page story in Justice League Europe for four or five issues. And then two issues into that, because that, once again, it was just a quarterly book, and I was just doing pencils. 12 pages isn't enough to pay the bills. So the editor of that actually offered me the first Green Lantern annual. And this is when Green Lantern was still pretty much a B character. He's, he, you know, he's considered A-list now. Right. Is this, is this Hal Jordan Green Lantern? or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's Hal. Yeah. And... and um, it was, I never even really thought about it until only a few years ago, but it was the first ever Green Lantern annual. Oh, Green that's Lantern, he was developed in 1959, I think. Right. And to this point, there was never a Green Lantern annual. So when he offered me the you know, Green Lantern annual number one, it didn't, it, it was a tie-in because they were doing this big Eclipso storyline back then. And so it tied in with all the other annuals as well. But it was it was a major job because it was fifty four pages. Oh wow! And this is this is literally like my third job. So I at this point I drew one full book, Suicide Squad, which was twenty two pages, and then I did two twelve page stories. And then the editor's like, "Hey, I want you to draw this fifty four page book." And I was just I remember calling guys up that were in the business for a few years already that I was friends with that I met through the Kubert School, Bart being one going. I just got this 54 page book. Calm me down. Calm me down. <laughs> Four pages. And they're like, just take it one day to one page at a time. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, think that, about it yeah. before, you'll just bury yourself. You just take it. Oh, yeah. One page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you know, I look at it like, it's funny because the uh, the annuals was uh, always such a scam because you know they'd come out in the summer because I guess the idea was that uh, kids probably would get a summer job and have a little bit more money and just because uh, my my town was uh, the town I grew up in uh, in sort of like rural upstate New York on the border with New Jersey it it uh, eventually it didn't have a comic book store anymore there used to be a newsstand and once it closed I had to subscribe to a lot of things and then it was like oh, yeah. well I don't get the annual. So I have to like, you know, make my parents take me somewhere where I can get the annual when it comes out, because if I'm buying it at a grocery store, I got to pick through all the copies to get the good one, you know, and uh, the yeah, the the annuals and then the special editions and then all the you know, once you started getting all the the miniseries and things like that, I think there was a year that there was an X-Men and Fantastic Four and an X-Men and Avengers. And I was just like, Wait, what is all this? You know what? And, and yeah, some of their great stories, but it was just a it was just a, a lot to get. And I remember like 
everybody had an annual in the summer, you know, it's seemingly anyway. So it was like, and they, and they cost more than the regular books, you know, they were a dollar 25, a dollar 50, you know, and eventually like two bucks. And I'm like, man, I, I don't have money for the annuals. I worked at a comic shop when I was a teenager, so <laughs> I lucked out. Where did you, uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, Maryland, right outside of DC. Oh, so okay. Right by the, it's called Beltsville, but I always say college park. Cause that's where the university of Maryland sure, is. Yeah, yeah. It's like five minutes away. Yeah. So, my, uh, my aunt and uncle lived in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia. So we would go there a few right. times a year. So yeah. And I've had, I've actually had friends who lived in college park over the years. So yeah, I'm uh, fairly familiar with that area. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, I just sort of wondering. So, bef- and I know I'm sort of jumping back because uh, I meant to ask this earlier before you go to the, the, the Kubert school, uh, at what point do you start, you know, reading comics in the way where you're like, I, I want to try and do this. And, and who did you like to draw the most at that point? Uh, I always, I was one of those kids that always drew in elementary school. Yeah. And I tell parents this now, cause I have a, I have a 16 year old daughter who doesn't draw at all, sure. but every kid around, you know, two, three years old, they like to draw. But the difference is some grow out of it, like my daughter did, and people like me don't. We just It's just something in us. We have to do it. And I was about 12, I think, 12, 13 years old, and I was walking home you know, from the bus stop, stopped into a 7-Eleven convenience store, and this issue of Captain America just like jumped out at me. It was issue 275. And it has this cool shot of Cap on the cover, lunge, you know, jumping at you. Bullets are coming at him. Is and that a is that up. is that a Mike Zek cover or? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. And and I saw that, and I just had to have it, so I bought it. And at that point, I stopped. Up until that point, what I was drawing was cars because I love cars. Sure. I still love cars. So I was just drawing cars, you know. But at that point, I was like, oh somebody's got to draw this stuff. And I just, you know, as a kid, you don't, you know, you're not scared of anything. You don't really give thought to anything. So I'm like 12, 13. And I'm like, I want to draw superheroes. So I just took out and my mom worked the government job and she would bring home reams of copy paper for me to draw on. Right. And, um, I would just, I just started trying to draw people. I didn't even thought like, can I draw people? I just tried. And then I saw an episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends shortly thereafter that featured X-Men. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. So I started drawing Iceman. And at that point, I just was like, I want to draw comics. And I I don't know what, I can't remember what specific comic book it was, but it was a comic book where I saw an ad for the Kubert School when I was in middle school. And I showed it to my parents and said, this is where I'm going. Yeah. And supported it full out. They didn't say, no, you should go to regular college or, you know, have a backup plan. No, I, I was dead set. This is where I'm going. Yeah. Well, my my story is very similar to yours, except for one major difference. You were talented and good at it. And I was not, I uh, just did, you know, the, the people didn't look right. You know, the, the recognizable characters, my parents were very supportive. 
Uh, they uh, did uh, enroll me in art lessons once a week. A very nice lady who, you know, she taught different styles of art, but that's what I was interested in. So she let me concentrate on that. And she taught me some good stuff about, you know, form and just, you know, d different yeah. ways to shape the body and all of that. Uh, I just uh, don't feel that I ever had the knack for it. And God bless her. Like at a certain point, you know, my dad got laid off and it was just like, you know what, we don't really have the money for it. And she's like, you know, I think he should still, he should still come, uh, you know? So she basically let me go for free on a scholarship for a little while. And that was great. It was a good outlet because, uh, you know, how much I, I enjoyed comics and I liked the process. It's just, I, I feel like the, the finished work, uh, wasn't great, but yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because the, uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends was, uh, a huge, you know, basically gateway drug, uh, for me because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew Spider-Man because he would be in these shorts on the electric company, these Spidey super stories. But, uh, that was the first like show where I'm like, Oh, I really like this. And I'd seen like the super friends before, but, uh, it was, I really connected with, uh, with Spider-Man. And, and his amazing friends for sure yeah no totally and in fact one of my one of my uh early gigs at marvel i think after being in the business for two years the the marketing department i guess license the marketing licensing department called me up and was like hey we got this uh you know this marketing job whatever we want you to do and i was like oh yeah what is it and they wanted me to draw the cover art to a VHS box for an episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And it was the X-Men episode. Oh, how great is that? <laughs> so, so, and I, you know, on the books, on my bookshelf behind me, I had like three of those VHS. Cause as soon as I did it, of course I bought it when it came out. Of course. And I picked like two more copies up at like yard sales. So I was like, this is incredible. Like, first cartoon i saw i'm drawing the freaking box art so you know i drew a shot of spider-man with the x-men behind him on the cover of the vhs box that's so. that's very cool i remember that that's uh one of two animated appearances where wolverine is inexplicably australian and uh yeah. I I recently did an interview that uh, I did for AfterBuzz TV, and uh, it'll show up on the Blackcast soon. With uh, the well, Eric Leewald is the creator of X Men animated series, and his wife Julia, who also uh, worked on the show, and uh, he had a lot of insight into the previous attempts at getting the X Men animated, and the reason why Wolverine had an Australian accent is just quite simply, well. Crocodile Dundee is popular, so he should have an Australian accent. And those were the kind of decisions that got made that kept the X-Men off the air for a little while. Jeez, that doesn't surprise me. No, I know. It's such a very, like, TV executive uh, uh, sort of thing. And uh, But, uh, man, I that was always the episode that uh, I, I liked the most. And Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends is sort of the the right approach towards comic book storytelling uh, that I've felt comfortable having my uh, four-year-old son, Felix, and uh, even my uh, two-year-old daughter, Lucy. They've both seen a little bit of that. I, I feel like even the 90s shows are still a little bit, uh, there's a little bit too much 
uh, you yeah. know, violence and the stakes are a little too high. Uh, I mean, especially, oh, yeah. you know, characters actually die in those shows. So I'm just like, yeah, that'll be all right. And, and I think they like it. And, you know, he's got a lot of clothes with Spider-Man on it. So he's got a lot of familiarity with the, the character. And, uh, you know, my, my daughter will point to Spider-Man and Hulk are the two that she can point to and say and know who they are. So I'm like, all right, uh, you know, start small. You know, you don't you don't want to uh, really rush it, you know. Oh, totally. Totally. No, that's awesome. Yeah, my daughter's into all that stuff. So. Oh, great. Yeah. We, we yeah. saw the movies and stuff yeah. together. And, you know, she was excited during the Super Bowl for the uh, Captain or Winter Soldier Falcon. Yeah. And, and I'm still a big, big nerd about the stuff. So I'm still very jacked for it. Yeah. I, I so, mean, I, I, I co-host a lot of shows about these things, you know, in addition to doing the black cast and we talk extensively about them, but, uh, very excited for, you know, WandaVision. It just seems like it's going to be so weird and different. So, uh, I'm all on board for that. And, you know, if, if they're going to hire Tom Hiddleston to play Loki and like, yeah, but it, this is called Loki reads the yellow pages. I'm like, great. I'll watch that too. That's fine. You know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've already talked for so long. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but, uh, I wanted to kind of, uh, give you the opportunity to hit a couple of, for you sort of as your career goes along, what some of the next high points, uh, were for you that as you know, you kind of look back a little bit on what we're talking about is almost 30 years now, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, doing stories with uh, Chris Claremont. Uh, what were sort of some of the, even if it wasn't like the next job after this 56-page uh, Green Lantern a annual, what were a couple of the things that really stood out, you know, a as you started to basically work your way uh, into the industry? Um, I mean, my first monthly book was at Marvel and it was Quasar. So I'm hoping at some point he gets into the movies. Oh, and... me too. At what point did you do Quasar? Was it, uh, was it when when the book started or no 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 it was issue i did issue 41 through 50 and then came back for 59 okay for one and then the book the book ended with issue 60 so i did 41 through 50 and then 59 right well at least you didn't do the last one because then it would you know it'd be like hey you killed quasar you know uh yeah, I remember, I, I think about Quasar once in a while, because he's one of those characters that's rumored to, you know, be showing up in, in the movies at some point. And I'm sure, you know, there's plans. They've probably commissioned somebody to write a Quasar script that they may or may not ever use. I mean, the way that, that it all works. But uh, sure. I do remember one issue in particular of Quasar, and I don't know if this would have been when you did it, because uh, I, I don't actually know what the issue number was. But uh, I remember they did like a they did like a race of like all these really the fastest characters in the Marvel Universe. And they came up with a cool workaround to actually use the Flash where his costume was all ripped up. He had no idea who he was. And it just sort of you as a and, and me who didn't even read DC. I'm like, oh, that's supposed to be Flash. That's really cool. You know, sort of like it didn't you know, they didn't do anything that would have violated any copyrights. They just had this guy. And uh, I always thought that that was kind of cool. And, uh, you know, the sort of like that story sticks with me than uh, more than I think anything else I remember about Quasar. Yeah, I don't even remember that. I mean, I know for a fact I didn't draw it, but I don't because I, I remember a lot of the run. Yeah, because the guy that before me, I'm still a fan of his artwork. Um, but, yeah, I don't remember that. 
the one, you know, the, the highlight for Quasar was actually the 59, the, the issue 59 I came back to do. It was the first time I worked with Ron Mars. Oh, sure. And Thanos was in it. So oh, very cool. It was Quasar, Thanos, and Star Fox were the main characters in it. So that was uh, that was after a three-issue run on Silver Surfer with a crossover called Blood and Thunder with Thor and Thanos and Surfer. And, and Wait, it was called uh, Blood and Thunder? Yeah. And they have a movie that's uh, coming out. You know, the, the next Thor will be called uh, Love and Thunder. So clearly. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I've looked I it know. up. The The issue was uh, Quasar number 17. And uh, Mark Mike Man, Mike Manley did the art for that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. An homage to Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash. Uh, and that uh, apparently that issue is worth eight dollars. So uh, you could also probably find it digitally. But uh, that'll tell you how much it stuck with me, though, that I remembered it so well. And, you know, it just happens to be issue number 17. And it, it had, you know, it had uh, Squadron Supreme, Black Racer, Speed Demon, Super Saber, Quicksilver, of course, Captain Marvel, uh, which I, I guess that was the uh, Monica Rambeau Captain Marvel. So uh, very cool, though. So, uh, yeah, that's a character that... Uh, uh, see, I asked you a question and then we ended up, uh, talking about <laughs> Quasar 17 for five minutes. Um, uh, so, uh, in terms of, uh, working with, uh, Ron Mars, I know that, uh, you were kind enough to send me some, uh, IDW stuff you did with him. I remember him from, uh, from Silver Surfer. I, I know he wrote at least, I don't know if he wrote it when it started, but I remember the Ron Lim Silver Surfer, the nineties Silver Surfer is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, took, took over his first issue was... Was it 50 or was it after? 50? Oh, that might make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Jim Starlin started writing the book. Right. Yeah, and then Ron basically apprenticed under Jim. That's how Ron got into the business. And uh, and then, you know, basically Jim handed it off to Ron. You know, obviously the editor was cool with it. And, you know, Ron worked on a couple of smaller things before Surfer. But Surfer was his big, his big break in to the business. Yeah. Um, but I worked, I, yeah, I worked with Ron on three issues of Surfer for the Blood and Thunder, the Quasar, Exo Man of War over at Valiant, um, Green Lantern, a couple things on Green Lantern at DC. I worked with, um, uh, and in the, the current stuff. So, yeah, I mean, Ron, yeah. I, I think I've known him for almost yeah. 92, I think. And, that, something like that. and you were kind enough to send me uh, some of these uh, these demigod issues where there's a word balloon that you could uh, fill in and you have messages yeah. for those of us uh, here on the black cast. I'll have to uh, uh, post that. Uh, you have one for Dennis Miller and even one for our uh, co-host on the Dennis Miller option, uh, Lindsay Floyd. So uh, I thought uh, that was really fun. So is this uh, a current ongoing title you're working on now? I know you sent this stuff to me a few months ago. I, I wasn't quite sure if this was what you were working on currently or if it's one of several things or, or where you're at at the moment. Uh, it's funny. So going back to like how you don't want to replace an artist because of time stuff. Yeah. So you know, it's a four-issue story arc. It's a four-issue miniseries. Okay. So one and two are out. Three and four are done. They're like in the can. They're totally, they're they're ready to go to print. We just need to decide how we want to do it. And because basically what happened is issue one came out in March, end of March, 2018. Issue two came out in 
I believe, June or so of 2018. And uh, issue three and four are done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, so we're the the main publisher. It says on the comic IDW. Yeah. But the main company is Ominous Press. Oh, I see. And Ominous Press is a company that was founded by Bart Sears. And I'm co-owner in it. And so is Ron Mars. And then the main publisher is a friend of ours named Sean Husbar. And all of us go back almost 30 years being friends. Right. So long story short with Ominous Press is Bart originally started Ominous Press around 1994 during the height of the comics boom. And he started it at the height of the boom. Actually, he didn't. He started it right before the boom went right downhill. Because I'm, I'm this press lasted for a year and a half back. Then. Oh boy! <laughs> and we put out three comics, and that was it. Oh no! So that's four <laughs> few years ago, and all of us were talking, and we were like, maybe we should try it again. So we decided to. So the book we have three properties: Dread Gods, which is written by Ron Mars and was drawn by a guy named Tom Rainey, who we're all you know known for a long time, great artist. Uh, Giant Killers, which is Bart's baby, which he uh, writes and draws. And we did a one shot with that. And then Demigod, which is uh, Ron writing my art. All the creations came from Bart's mind. And then Ron fleshed out Demigod more and Dread Gods more. So one and two, like I said, are out. We even have a hardcover collection of issues one and two that there's a 12-page story in. That that's the only way you can get it is in the hardcover collection right. through our website. And then, long story. So three and four were done. They're in a the can. They took so long to come out because we're a small publisher and all of us do other work. So I do a lot of artwork outside of comics as well. And for the past couple of years. A lot of my time was spent working with a company doing artwork for the Chicago Bears. And um, that just took a lot of time. Yeah, sure. Because, <laughs> you know, I worked on it throughout football season. But the first year I did the stuff with the Bears, we actually started in January of uh, 2018. And I finished the first season stuff all the way up till they went to the playoffs last year. And then I started again in the summer of 19. And it went until the end of the season. Oh, wow. So basically, God, I was trying to fit in yeah. while I was doing that stuff. So, the st- you know, the books are done, but IDW basically was like, you know, we've got so much on our plate right now. Yeah. If you guys want to just go ahead and put them out, put them out. So now we're just trying to determine if we want to put them out as issues three and four separately. Yeah. Or do we just want to put out one, you know, 48-page book and combine it? Sure. You know, both issues into one comic or do we just want to jump right to the trade paperback of issues one through four and then put this 12 page story into it as well. Yeah. So well, we're just figuring out how. We yeah. Put well, it you'll, you'll have to let me know what you decide. And uh, what else is, uh, is there, is there any other comic work right now? Or is it a lot of this outside stuff like you were talking about with the bears? It's all the outside stuff. I just finished the bear stuff pretty much around the beginning of January for the season. And now I'm doing some other artwork, just, you know, it's, it's stuff that the you know comic book fans would never see. I mean, I'm doing work for a construction company, a large construction company that 
has, I guess, their base of operations is here where I live in Charlotte, but, you know, they do stuff in different states you know, on the eastern side, that sure. is. Sure. And they're, they're going to have, there's some big convention in March, so they're having me do a lot of artwork. And it's all, you know, what I do is, if you go to my website, there's an advertising section of the website, so it's all comic book looking stuff. Yeah, sure, of yeah. course. Yeah. Hiring me to go, hey, make us a sign. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. Well, and, and by the way, that, let me just throw in the website, andysmithart.com and, uh, you on Twitter at Andy Smith. Sorry. What were you going to say? No, I was just saying it's all comic booky looking type stuff. Just, you know, I've done stuff for, like you said, the, the bears, this construction company. Um, I first started doing stuff in the nineties. I think one of my first clients was Bally's total fitness. I think oh, they're wow. still around. <laughs> yeah. No, they're, they're still around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I do, I do a lot of private stuff too, where people will be like, Hey, I want to get my, you know, my husband a surprise gift. Can you, he loves comics. He loves superheroes. This was, I don't know. This one just came to mind, even though it's a few years old. The, the woman was like, you draw him, you know, basically draw his head on Wolverine. And then her son is like two years old. So you can do, can you do like a mini toddler version of Wolverine alongside of him? Wow. So I was like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I get, get requests for that. Hey, I mean, look, that, that character would be canon. There were the X babies, you know, I, I can visualize, uh, you know, Arthur Adams for X-Men bring Here comes the annuals again. X-Men and uncanny X-Men annual number 10. I I can very much visualize the X babies. Uh, and I think they showed up a few times. So yeah, that little Wolverine, that's a, that's a canon character in the Marvel universe. That's right. So yeah, I do lots of stuff like that. And then comic book wise, I'm launching a, kickstarter in the next couple weeks for a self uh, creator own project i'm doing it's uh it's a flip book i used to love well actually i've never really seen flip books before but basically it's two comics in one so it's going to be 40 pages of story on one side one story is called jungle lords which is about this average very very average tame looking couple who own a small air transport company and they end up transporting something for this shady, shady, shady people that they think are with the government. Cause right. like I said, these couple is not too swift <laughs> and uh, they end up, I don't want to give too much away, but they end up getting sucked through a wormhole. And when they come out on the other end of the wormhole, they are uh, transformed. We'll just leave it at that. So that's right. called jungle Lords. And it's called a flip book because if you're actually looking at a comic, so picture a magazine or comic in your hand, and instead of you, you literally just flip it. And then when you flip it over on the backside is a story called Ultra. And Ultra is a 20 something year old guy who's been working at Walmart since his high school days. And his, uh, his biggest achievement is the fact that in the years he's been there, he's been employee of the month three times. And he ends up getting these superpowers from, uh, I don't think Cosmic Storm is copyrighted, so I'll say Cosmic Storm. <laughs> right. Uh, while he's in his apartment. And the title of the story is Girl Trouble because every guy thinks it's cool to have two ladies on the hook, but is it really cool when those two ladies are superpowered? You'll have to read Ultra <laughs> to find out. 
So that is uh, yeah. that'll be launched on Kickstarter in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, just uh, just imagine the you know to bring it to a universe that I'm familiar with. Just imagine when uh, She Hulk and uh, Ms. Marvel both find out that uh, that you're actually dating both of them. I don't know how how well that would go. You know. Um, <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, look, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, we've talked uh, at, at great length for this one, but uh, once it's up and running, you know, we can uh, always have you back just for a few minutes to let everybody know uh, where to find it. But uh, to keep tabs on you, it is uh, andysmithart.com. Uh, the, the one final thing will be that uh, I mentioned uh, my friend Jeff Winstead, and he actually messaged me because uh, I had told him a while ago that I'd heard from you and we were going to have you on, and he was a big fan, and he wanted to know, had we talked about Exo Manowar, and uh, I'm like, actually, no, we, we didn't get to it, but uh, he was a, a huge fan of that, which was part of Valiant, which I, I only yeah. sort of uh, kind of remember, but I guess you and Bart Sears did that together, right? Yeah, we alternated back in 90. It was right after Omnis Press went down. Right. Valiant want to relaunch everything, but they weren't going to start with number ones, which I actually thought was kind of cool because now it seems like everything's starting with the new number one. But back then they said, you know, we're going to relaunch all our books under a title called Birthquake. And I can't remember the issue number we started on, but they wanted to put out a book every two weeks. Oh, wow. For for all their titles. Now, you know, it's Valiant, so it's not like it was Marvel where they had hundreds of titles. They had, you know, 10, if that many. I, it was Solar, Man of the Atom, uh, Exo Man of War, Dr. Mirage, and maybe a couple others, so not a ton. Yeah. So they wanted to put it out every two weeks, and they wanted to have, they wanted to try with all their books to have some cohesive look to them so it wasn't jarring, Right. you know, couple of weeks to be like whoa this looks totally different because the storyline continues through so ron ron mars came on as the writer and bart already worked on exo a couple of years before that so they tapped him for it and they knew me from you know working with bart sharing a studio with them and at that point in my career i was only three or four years into the, into the business and bart was one of my major artistic influences so my stuff looked a lot like his at that time and they were like man it'd be great if you guys would do exo because there'd be this nice visual continuity to it so we were like well yeah of course i mean we share a studio together in new york so why not yeah um we were in upstate new york at the time so uh yeah we did exo for i did i think 10 or 11 issues, so probably 20 issues total, I guess. Right. We worked on it before. Well, that, and that's the interesting thing, too, because it's like, you know, I, I see that in the message. I'm like, oh, yeah, Valiant Comics. You know, uh, Neil Adams has a comic book shop right down the street uh, from where we are. He's uh, He doesn't live out here, but he he's out somewhat regularly, so he'll be there. He'll do signings sometimes and, you know, all that. But because it's Neil Adams' shop, there's a whole wall of continuity comics. And I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot about those, you know, which was something that uh, he was uh, heavily involved in, in in the 80s. And it's like, for all the stuff that I remember, you know, the Marvel comics I read and even the, 
the DC comics that I, I didn't necessarily read regularly, but I was familiar with the characters and, and, you know, sort of some of the big events, you know, like even though I, I didn't read crisis on infinite earths, I saw all the covers, you know, so I, I certainly okay. remember it from that time period, but it's just, there's so many other things that I hadn't thought about in years, you know, and it just, uh, you know, when you're, you're just a, you know, you're not in comics, you're just a fan of it. Uh, it's, uh, it's always interesting to have these, these little things that, uh, that you're reminded Minded up, you know. Neil is uh, he's a I love Neil. He's a yeah. great guy. Um, his store I went into a store because it just opened this past summer. So and I was out there. Oh, for you, San Diego. Yeah. So you so, you 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 were you know like a five minute walk from my house. The the crusty bunkers. Let's give let's give old Neil a shout out. I remember when it opened. Yeah, it opened. It had like a soft opening in uh, like may like april and then they did like a big opening weekend uh, around comic-con and they've had uh, some artist appearances the one that comes to mind is uh john bogdanov who i know best because he worked on power pack but i know he also did uh superman and a you know billion other things but uh yeah they 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 do a lot there and they have you know a lot of space for i don't know for people to 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 work on stuff and you know neil will do stuff there it's uh it's a cool little shop and i i hope that uh, he does well with it because uh you know i'm uh, always trying to lure my kids into comics and to have a great shop like that down the street from our house would be fantastic oh yeah it's 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 really nice i used to stop into well i should say used to because you know like you said neil's shop just opened so this was the first time i could go to it last summer but before that, every year I came out, I would always stop in the House of Secrets. Oh, yeah. That's also in Burbank. I know this is. Yeah, I've, I've brought my son there uh, and, and now my daughter. But I think it was before my daughter was born. We'll go there uh, on a free comic book day. We've been to House of Secrets a few times for that. And, you know, my 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 son will tend to pick out like, oh, I like Spider-Man, but it's more like, oh, look, DuckTales, you know? So, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's four, so it's all right. You know, <laughs> my, my son owns one comic book that uh, it wasn't like a free, you know, uh, one of the free comic book day books. It was, it was an actual like DuckTales with Uncle Scrooge on the cover. Uh, I think it was like DuckTales number 17, the current DuckTales. So, you know, uh, it's, uh, there's some great shops here and, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of them in the LA area, but even, uh, in, in Burbank near where I live, there's a, there's a lot of them. So you'll have to uh, let me know if you end up uh, out, uh, this way again for Comic-Con or other times. And, uh, we can always, oh, you know, yeah. every, uh, every summer. I've okay. been going out there every summer for like 20 years. So, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I went once and I, I loved it. I mostly went for the TV panels that were there. There was a show that I loved called fringe that had a panel. My wife liked a few oh, of the shows. Sure. Yeah, and uh, it was so much fun. It was great. I know the the artist Dave Dorman. I know him a little bit. Uh, you know, he's best known for his uh, Star Wars work. We always have him yeah. on the black cast every time there's a new Star Wars movie. I'll always talk to him. So I got to say hi to him there. Uh, and I went out to dinner with, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, artist friends and... Uh, uh, one of whom that I, I, I actually can't remember his name, but I would keep it a uh, secret, uh, just because he had, uh, he knew Jack Kirby really well. And he had all these great oh. stories about the way that Jack would, uh, bad mouth Stan. So I was just like, I'm just going to sit here and listen to this all day, all night, you know, <laughs> but yeah, no comic Con's so much fun. It's just, uh, it's such an ordeal, especially when you have, uh, two small children. I think when my children are bigger, oh, yeah. I can see making a weekend out of it. Yeah. That shows a beast. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's nicer to go to, to smaller ones sometimes. You know, I actually I, I filmed an interview with uh, Chris Claremont uh, in sort of a side room at uh, one in Ontario, California. That was a lot more manageable, you know, than uh, uh, there there are no extra side rooms at San Diego Comic Con because everything is uh, taken up by something. So you know that one that one's a little bit more manageable. I feel like I would bring the kids to something more like that before like. Well, do you want to walk, you know, 12 miles uh, over 14 hours? All right, let's do it. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. I, I get it. Well, Andy, I don't even know exactly how long we've talked, but it's pretty close to two hours at this point. And, uh, you know, I need to get my kids. You have uh, you have uh, your family. I could have easily talked to you for two hours more. Uh, so uh, we'll definitely have to have you back, especially when the uh, the Kickstarter is up. But as I mentioned, it's andysmithart.com. And, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about the outside projects. You know, we, we're pretty much due for, uh, for a, a new Black Cast T-shirt. So maybe we can, uh, we can negotiate uh, terms for, uh, you know, an, an image that would go on. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Black Cast logo, but uh, it looks suspiciously like the Amazing Spider-Man logo in that is a blatant ripoff of the Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> logo. Yeah. Yeah, man. We talk about something. Yeah, absolutely well a andy i really appreciate you taking the time and thanks so much for reaching out and uh, being patient yeah. as uh it took me a while to to actually uh carve out the time in the schedule but it's because i knew that i wasn't going to just want to talk to you for 15 20 minutes you know i i knew that i was going to try to uh monopolize uh, an entire afternoon of yours I appreciate it. No worries. Yeah. Uh, and again, it is Andy Smith on uh, Twitter. And did you say that's the Instagram or was the Instagram something else? No, Instagram's Andy Smith. Well, no, Twitter and Instagram are both Andy Smith art. Okay. So I gave the wrong. Okay. Andy Smith art, andysmithart.com. It's very important to have consistency on your online presence. Well, Andy, I uh, look forward to uh, talking again. And, you know, if you're going to be yeah. out here, uh, we'll have to uh, get some time in the studio and then we can, we can really, really nerd out to the, uh, all the Marvel books that came out in uh, February of 1976. <laughs> Yeah, I, hey, I pulled up the list when we were talking, so you yeah. got a lot of them. Yeah, there's yeah, a great – look, I, I'll just the, – the the real final thing will be uh, one of them was the Avengers that apparently was the first appearance of Hellcat. So I'm like, well, that's a cool – that's one I'm going to need to have, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, good. thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who listened. Let us know what you uh, thought. Share all of your comic book memories and, uh, you know, any of your favorite characters. And, hey, look up your birth month and uh, let us know some of the great comics that came out then. That is all the time we have for today. Make sure to keep in touch with the Black Cast on Twitter at BlackCast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And, of course, the Black Cast on Facebook. Go ahead and give us the old thumbs up. And blackcast.com for all your black casting needs. We will see you next time on the Blackcast. It's on Afterbus TV, that's right. But that guy Christian, you rock! Alright, several Texas had to go take care of some business. But I'm here to say, have a nice day. And listen to the damn show. <laughs>